Morning again, everyone. First off, I want to uh, thank Evelyn for finding this picture um, that she used on the front of the bulletin. After she found that and uh, showed it to me while she was putting her bulletin together, I thought, hey, that's better than the title slide I had. So uh, thank you to Evelyn for finding that and to Photoshop for helping me make it the right size for that. So um, over the next uh, three weeks, we're going to be taking a look at different things different signposts, I'm calling them, that point us toward God. And this morning, I want us to take a look at, sort of dovetailing in with what Paul had to say around the Lord's table, that one of the signposts that point us towards God is creation itself. I think mankind has always had some sense of of cosmic wonder. Um, In a lot of ways, people of of the past in ancient times, in some ways may have had a little bit better shot at that, uh, mainly because they didn't have so much light at night. (laughs) So when they looked up into the heavens, they saw something a lot of times far more amazing than what we see. This is a scene from uh, one of the best places, so they say, I haven't been up there at night, only once during the daytime, but on the top of, uh, of Haleakala in Hawaii, and there's an observatory up there, but it's far enough away from the light. You know, you don't have all these big cities everywhere throwing so much light into the sky, but it's dark enough that you can really see how amazing the field of stars is above you. And I can only imagine that throughout the ages, as mankind has looked up into the sky, they've just always been amazed, even overwhelmed by just the vastness of creation. The world they lived in seemed so big, they didn't know where the ends of it were, but then they'd look up and see far more than they could possibly imagine. I mean, God, early on, as he was revealing himself to his people, he didn't even really tell early man about the vastness of its scope. It would have been too much for us to handle. Instead, in his wisdom, he's given us this opportunity to use our minds, the gifts that he's given us, to little by little to discover more and more and more just how big this place is until we have this understanding of this vast universe that Paul talked about around the table this morning. The farther along we've gone in history, the more incrementally we've learned how big things are. But then we've also, just as we've started to wrap our minds around the scope and the size of creation... We're only now starting to even discover its depth. Just in the last two or three months, I've seen multiple articles that have come out, different uh, research studies that have been published, about things just dealing with the human biome, the, the, the worlds that are found within our own bodies. Um, in fact, I saw one statistic said that in a healthy adult, which I think most of us are relatively healthy, but in a healthy adult, there are at least 10 times more bacteria in your body than there are your own cells. I didn't do a slide for that one. <laughs> I, thought, I almost did, but I, uh, that's, that's a little too much. Um, we're just now starting to get just the tiniest fraction of an understanding of what even goes on just within us. We started to see things on the grand, vast scale, but then we start to explore more and more, smaller and smaller, deeper into this world. 
And we start to see that, wow, there's so much that we haven't even grasped the tip of the iceberg yet. All the ways that even the smallest of things happening within our own bodies, how much effect they have on our health and our lifespans and and so much else that we just don't even know yet. Now, as Christians, it can be easy for us to take for granted that the, the majesty of the created universe points us to the majesty of a creator. Those of us who know about the living God can look at all this and be in awe and wonder of this God that created so much. And as, again, as, as, as Paul mentioned at the table, we can be in awe at such love that this God who did all that would love us so much to go to the cross for us. But it's definitely possible without all of the relevant information to, to misread a sign. And there was an article that I saw just a few years ago um, about a, a sign that was, was definitely misread. I've got a, a picture here. Now, when Bob Strick and Vicki Tomsha had business at the Spokane County Courthouse on June 2nd, and I believe this was in 2010, uh, they drove around from parking lot to parking lot looking for free public parking. Lot after lot required a permit or some cash. They thought they hit pay dirt in the little lot just south of the courthouse. The sign read, no public parking permit required. Most of us would probably infer the sign's intended meeting, meaning, you know, no parking without a permit. But Strick and Tomsha, both of whom are from out of town and rarely go to the courthouse, said they took the sign at its literal grammatical face value, no permit required. We thought, cool, and we pulled in, said Strick, a 71-year-old retired mill owner. We don't have signs like that in Cuttle Falls. We thought it was just a long-winded way of saying this was public parking. <laughs> Strick and Tom Chef, friends who had driven separately and met there, returned to find $30 parking tickets on each of their cars. Tom Chef looked at the sign again. There was no comma or dash or semicolon or period between no public parking and permit required. The words were the same size and font, not separated by any space. In fact, you can see that's, that's the very sign and the very person. I stood there and read it five times, said Tomsha, a 64-year-old hospice worker from Deer Park. I thought, okay, I guess if it had some punctuation in it, it would mean an entirely different thing. But if you just read it at face value, what it says is what it says. So Strick and Tomsha took it to court, armed with a cell phone photo, and won. One small step for Bob and Vicky, one giant leap for grammar nerds everywhere. Don McDowell, the county's parking coordinator, was good-natured about the whole thing and said he planned to clarify the sign with punctuation or a line separating the phrases. Um, when I heard that story, I just couldn't help but think of one of my you know, favorite signs here about how commas save lives. <laughs> let's eat, Grandma, or let's eat, Grandma. It's a very different thing without that comma. Um, it's possible without some of the additional clues that we need to misread a sign, something that would seem very plain, all things being equal, with a little bit of background understanding, can be very easily misinterpreted. And so as we say, and we see in our scripture reading, you know, the heavens declare the glory of God, well, there have been plenty of times in the history of mankind where we've started worshiping the creator, excuse me, the creation rather than the the creator. An understanding and an overwhelmed response to the vastness of of nature has led to 
people having some form of naturalism, saying, you know, there, there is only nature. There is no God. It's only what's in the natural world. It's led to different forms of, of paganism, saying that nature itself is a manifestation of God, and so it is to be worshipped. Or even a, a pantheism saying, well, everything is God. In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, it's commented that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godless and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile and foolish, excuse me, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and, and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to, to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who was forever praised. Amen. Now, Paul here was really talking about those who had rejected God early on in the history of humanity, who knew there was a God, but they, they went their own way. And they weren't among those chosen people of God who God chose to re-reveal himself to. I don't think re-reveal is a word, because if it is, it'd be way too awkward. But God chose to show himself again to his people Israel. But the Gentile world, they remained astray. For a long time. And so you can look at that and think, and many Jews did think like, oh, those, those Gentiles. Wow, they just, they looked at all that God had made and they decided to go their own way with it and ignore its creator. But the Jews weren't innocent in this either. Even, they were even warned about this. In, in Deuteronomy, is one of many places. Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 19 Moses warns this people Israel before they enter into the promised land. It says, when you look up to the sky, this is Deuteronomy 4.19, and when you look up to the sky and see the sun, the moon, and the stars, and all the heavenly array, do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worshiping the things the Lord your God has apportioned to all the nations under heaven. You see, they were coming out from a place in Egypt where the worship of the sun and the sun god was very prevalent. And it wasn't just in Egypt where they had been, it was all over that part of the world. There was widespread worship of some form of a sun god, recognizing its, its primacy in many cases among all the different gods and goddesses that the different cultures would have. And so God, through Moses, reminds them, okay, you're going to look up, you're going to see this world, you're going to see the sky, the heavenly host, and you're going to be amazed. Don't forget that that's not what is to be worshipped. But they did. One example way later on in the history of God's people into the divided kingdom, we have Manasseh. In 2 Kings chapter 21, starting in verse 3, says that he rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He also erected altars to Baal and made an Asherah pole, as Ahab king of Israel had done. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, which, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. 
in the two courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. It's probably this scene that that is being recalled in Ezekiel. When Ezekiel talks about all the different ways idolatry had entered even into the temple of the Lord. Going back through Israel's history, in Ezekiel 8 verse 16, in this vision, it says, He then brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord, and there at the entrance to to the temple, between the portico and the altar, were about 25 men, with their backs toward the temple of the Lord, and their faces toward the east. And they were bowing down to the sun in the west. Now fortunately, Josiah comes along later on. 2 Kings 23 here in verses 4 and 5, says, The king ordered Hilkiah the high priest, excuse me, Hilkiah the high priest, the priest next in rank, and the doorkeepers to remove from the temple of the Lord all the articles made for Baal and Asherah and all the starry host. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron Valley and took the ashes to Bethel. He did away with the idolatrous priests appointed by the kings of Judah to burn incense on the high places of the towns of Judah and those around Jerusalem, those who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and moon, to the constellations and all the starry hosts. And down in verse 11, it says, He removed from the entrance to the temple of the Lord the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun. They were in the court near, near the room of an official named Nathan Melech. Josiah then burned the chariots dedicated to the sun. He pulled down the altars the kings of Judah had erected on the roof near the upper room of Ahaz and the altars Manasseh had built in the two courts of the temple of the Lord. He removed them from there, smashed them to pieces and threw the rubble into the Kidron Valley. So even in the history of Israel, you see this vacillation back and forth to being pulled back into what some could see as a very natural response to the magnificence of creation and forgetting who created it. But fortunately, there were kings like Josiah who saw the truth. And when they rediscovered the word of the Lord and the law of God, they realized that has to stop. We can't worship this creation rather than its creator. And so they put things right. And they go back and forth and back and forth. Even in, in the Mishnah, which is a, a, record, a, a written recording of a lot of the oral history and the oral traditions of the elders of, of the Jewish people, you know, sort of in the two or three centuries surrounding the time of Christ in that second temple era. There's even a record in there of a, of a water drawing ceremony that happened during the festival of the tabernacles. And as the procession reached the gate that led out to the east, probably that very same gate that those priests under Manasseh were bowing down to the sun, it says the worshipers turned from east to west in order to face the temple. And then they proclaimed loudly, Our fathers who were in this place had their backs to the temple of the Lord, their faces turned eastward, and they worshipped the sun to the east. But as for us, our eyes are turned to the Lord. They could see, even in their own history, how they had missed it. How they had taken something so magnificent, and they had misread the sign. So we have in our reading from this morning, this reminder here in the songbook of Israel to be a constant reminder, hey, the heavens declare the glory of God. It's his glory that they declare. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day by day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. 
They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. The heavens declare His glory. They speak of His majesty. If we'll just remember, if we'll just listen to what they really have to say. It says that in the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It's His Son. He's the one who pitched the tent for it. He's the one who put the sky in place. In fact, when you get to the end of this, the, the way a lot of modern translations read says that you know, nothing is deprived of its warmth. Talking about the sun, but I don't want to get too divergent here. But a, more, a much more literal translation of that would probably read, nothing is hidden from his son. There's a, a Hebrew word there. The normal word for sun that's typically used is, is shemesh. Um, but the author here specifically does not use that word. He uses a synonym for the word sun, which is also sometimes translated warmth here. And it's given this, this masculine possessive on it. It's a different word because, see, there was a sun god, Shamash. And there wanted to be no confusion here. We're not talking about this sun god, Shamash. And so we didn't even use the word Shemesh to, to be confused. They used a synonym of that, and then they said, His Son. Nothing is hidden from God's Son. It's His to begin with. He pitched the tent for it. It belongs to Him, for He made it. Right here, towards the beginning of Israel's songbook, is this constant reminder Don't be like those people who have misread that sign over and over and over again. Remember what this really points to. And so as we look up into the sky, we see creation all around us. We see the beauty and the diversity and the majesty of all creation. In some ways, as we see it all, the more we see and the more we understand, the smaller we can begin to feel. When we see it so big and ourselves so small in comparison, it points us to something greater. Now we can miss what that something is if we stop there, as so many people have done. And we've got some more signposts that we're going to talk about the next couple of weeks that make sure we're still pointed in the right direction. But we need to recognize what even this incomplete sign gives us. There's so many, especially in our modern age, when we find success and we acquire knowledge and we get accolades and acclaim, we're led to pride and arrogance about our accomplishments. But there's one field that I've noticed that the best and brightest don't tend to go that way quite so easily. But they're led more to a path of humility. Because see, so often, when I hear the most accomplished scientists in the realms of space exploration and astrophysics, they speak with such humility and wonder and awe at what they've seen and what they've learned. Because they recognize their relative size in a vast universe. I think it might be a little bit easier for them than for some others To heed the words of James 4.10, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. When we see the greatness of all that God has done, of all of creation, it can make us feel pretty small, and maybe that's by design. So that God can say to us, Look how big I am, and how small 
that you are. Don't try and lift yourself up so high. We see a universe with such enormous scope and unfathomable depth. Now imagine the one who put it in place. The one who set it into motion with a word. God, you are so great and I am so small. Even as we recognize and begin to attain the great potential you've endowed us with, God, let our pride and self-satisfaction never overshadow our awe for your greatness. And the best thing that I think about this sign that points us towards something greater, that gives us such humility about our place in the universe, is that it reveals something very powerful about the love that such a great God must have for those who are as small and seemingly insignificant as us. Of that picture, I, I should have borrowed it and put it up again myself, that picture of what our galaxy would look like from the outside looking in and how just one of those little bright spots, one little speck in that is our entire solar system. God is so great and we are so small. Looking at the picture from the outside of our galaxy, looking in at it, you'd never even know we were there, but God doesn't just know we're there. He's loved us enough to make us in His own image, to be His image bearers, to be called as His people. And He has never stopped in His relentless pursuit of you and a relationship with you. Yeah, we're mighty small, but God sure seems to think we're mighty important. We're mighty valuable to Him. And so we should have in equal doses humility and gratitude for the one who made us, placed us in such a magnificent universe, and said, I've chosen you to be my people, and I will be your God. And in fact, I love you so much that I'm going to send my son to die for you, to do what it takes to take the wall of separation from between us, so that I can have a relationship with you forever. If you're in awe of this majestic and mighty God, and you've started to come to know His love for you, and you want to answer that call that He sent out for you to come to Him, we'd love for you to do that this morning. If there's any way that we can help you to respond to His love and His message, please let us know. Please come while we stand, while we sing.